A private fundraiser brings a Trump to West Virginia, and the Libertarian candidate for governor says it's time for better choices and better decisions. This is Viewpoint from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Welcome to Viewpoint. I'm your host, Ashton Mara. Donald Trump is still working to raise money in West Virginia, this week sending his son to a joint National State Finance Committee event, what Eric Trump told supporters in Charleston. Politics in coal country can be a complicated thing as we visit Greene County, Pennsylvania to discuss the downturn in the industry and what that means for the presidential race there. And on the local front, we meet David Moran, the Libertarian Party's gubernatorial candidate, who says voters are unhappy with the choices they have on the ballot and are looking for a change. Those stories coming up on Viewpoint. Hillary Clinton returns to the campaign trail after taking some time off this week due to a bout of pneumonia. But in her wake, surrogates like her husband, former President Bill Clinton, and the sitting president himself, Barack Obama, attended campaign events and fundraisers across the country. A surrogate for the Donald Trump campaign also made a stop in West Virginia this week. Wednesday, the presidential candidate's son, Eric Trump, attended a private fundraiser here in Charleston. Joining me now to discuss this fundraising event is Conrad Lucas, the West Virginia Republican Party chairman. Conrad, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So this private event held at a home here in Charleston where Eric attended. I guess he was the guest of honor, so to speak. What other big names went to that event? Well, we saw RNC chairman Reince Priebus join as well, which was wonderful to see the chair of the RNC and, of course, Donald Trump's son, Eric, talking about the great unity right now between the National Party and the Trump campaign. Uh, so, because oftentimes we've, we've heard lots of questions posed publicly of how well are the campaign and the party working together. Well, I tell you, there was no greater show of unity than to see uh, Reince Priebus himself standing right alongside uh, Eric Trump. So two big names in West Virginia this week. You know, when you talk about a presidential campaign, you're always talking about the need to raise big dollars. So tickets to this event, $750, $2,700 to take a photo with Eric Trump, and $15,000 per couple to attend a VIP roundtable. Do you have any idea how much money was raised last night? You know, I don't know the final dollar figure. I know they were very pleased with the turnout and with what was raised uh, here in West Virginia. And that's those types of numbers are, are fairly typical at this stage of the game for a presidential campaign, be that Republican or Democrat. It's, it's these final weeks of the campaign fundraising where the most important, it's most important to get contributions in so that ad time can be reserved in battleground states and so get out the vote efforts can be funded. And so I understand they are very, uh, we're very pleased with the turnout in West Virginia. So this money is going to a fundraising committee called West Virginia Finance Committee for Trump Victory. It's a partnership, like you said, between the Trump campaign, the Republican National Committee, groups here in West Virginia, and the state party. As you all raise this kind of money, what what's your intention? What do you want to do with that? Is it going to stay here in West Virginia? Well, the key for us, of course, for the RNC and for the state party, uh, the party's role in 
presidential campaigns, gubernatorial campaigns, and in, in, all the way down to the local level, the, the party's role is with the get-out-the-vote efforts, and that is with persuading our own voters to make it to the polls. It's with our uh, helping to support our volunteer activities, victory offices around the state, and um, to ensure that we have a field program like we've had in past elections that has been uh, very successful in turning out the Republican base in order to vote. And some of the funds, um, as per the, the uh, fundraising program that was set up. Some of the funds raised as part of Trump victory will stay right here in West Virginia, and some will be used in uh, the battleground states like our neighbors in Ohio and Virginia. Conrad, can you tell me who makes that kind of decision with this specific committee? Does the state make those decisions about where the money goes? Does the national campaign? It, it will all be a group effort of making those decisions uh, come up probably about four weeks from now, whenever we're in crunch time politically and determining exactly where funds need to be used around the country to ensure that Donald Trump is the next president. So what did Eric Trump have to say last night? Well, his message was that of us needing great change in America and of us not needing to extend Barack Obama's presidency by adding Hillary Clinton uh, to, to the White House. Of course, we talked a lot about uh, the coal industry and about Hillary Clinton's statement that she wants to make sure a lot of coal companies and coal miners are out of business. Uh, we talked about Donald Trump's vision for the economy of the United States and the important role that domestic energy sources will play in that. And of course, those energy sources are always a great of great interest to uh, to folks in West Virginia. Understanding that a Trump presidency would include. West Virginia coal and West Virginia natural gas. So it was good to hear that confirmed uh, by Eric Trump. It's highly unlikely that Trump's going to lose this race in West Virginia. So from your perspective as the state party chairman, what's his appeal? Why is he doing so well? Is it just coal? I think it's personality. It's the entire state of West Virginia has suffered economically uh, under the Obama administration. And it's Trump has had an incredible appeal amongst voters who are desperate for major change in Washington. And, of course, Mr. Trump has never held public office, and he is running as an outsider candidate, which he very much, very much is. So I think it's that type of appeal. Folks are looking to step outside the box. And Mr. Trump's candidacy in the primary and out in the general is very out of the box. But you know, I'll tell you one thing that's, that's very interesting is back in 2011, when we were having a special, a special election here uh, for governor, there was a national polling firm, PPP, that polled the governor's race in West Virginia, along with a variety of other hypothetical matchups for uh, races, including president. And Donald Trump in 2011, before he had announced he was running for president or, or anything, again, five years ago, was finishing second in the primary numbers, um, second only to Mike Huckabee at the time in 2011. And Huckabee, of course, had won West Virginia in 2008. So there's been an appeal, particularly amongst Republicans, uh, to support Donald Trump in West Virginia for several years, predating his own candidacy. Well, you mentioned some polling, and so while I have you, I want to talk about the governor's race this year. Bill Cole is down, you know, close to 10 points, I think actually a little over 10 points in the last poll. He's obviously the Republican running against Jim Justice for governor. How do you feel about that race at this point? Can he come back? I, and I think he he very much is. You know, Bill Cole started off, of course, as very much an outsider candidate, and it takes a while for outsider candidates to gain uh, name recognition around the state. And so often West Virginians, you know, we're a very personalized state. We want to have the same relationship with our, our governor as we do with our county elected officials. We expect a certain type of familiarity. So as Bill Cole is becoming more familiar to the voting, uh, the voting public, uh, they're becoming more comfortable with voting 
for him. And I um, am very proud to say we actually, the state Republican Party, had commissioned a poll that was just finished that uh, more details will be um, forthcoming on that one that shows Bill Cole down by only two points. So not familiar, even though he spent four years in the Senate and two years as Senate president. Sure. It's, uh, again, his Senate district itself is a small portion of the state. And, of course, many folks don't follow state state politics, the insider baseball state politics, like the state legislature, as much as they do national elections. So Bill Cole is of course, became Senate president during his first term as a state senator and had become a household name for folks who live and breathe politics in West Virginia. But for those who don't fall into that category, uh, this is their first chance to get to, to get to know him and get to meet him. Okay. Conrad Lucas is West Virginia's Republican Party chairman. Conrad, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. As Conrad mentioned, Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump is almost certain to win West Virginia come November 8th. A September statewide poll showed the candidate 18 points ahead of his Democratic rival here. But that hasn't stopped West Virginia's only Democratic member of Congress from not just backing, but continuing to defend Hillary Clinton. U.S. Senator Joe Manchin announced his official endorsement well over a year ago and toured the state with the Clintons before May's primary. This week at a forum on national disaster in Washington, sponsored by The Hill, he was once again asked to defend his presidential pick despite her lack of support in the state. Donald Trump's going to win my state big, okay? I'm not going to support Donald. There's no way I can. There's no way that I was ever raised believed that way. I, he, he might be a good I don't know him. I do know Hillary. I've worked with Hillary and, and uh, Bill, her husband, President Bill. They've been friends. They know West Virginia. They spent more time in West Virginia than anybody else. They know a state demographics of my state like they do Arkansas. So I've had a great relationship. We've built a a relationship. I have a comfort level. I've been able to sit down. She's rational. She's reasonable. You can work through it. We might not agree, but we find a work pathway forward. That's all you can ask for today. So I know the smart thing for me to do is be against Hillary. That's not why you sent me there. If you sent me there to be in the best position to help my state and to work with people I know I can work with, then it shouldn't be about me getting reelected. It should be about what's good. That, the worst thing happens to me, you defeat me and send me home. That's a pretty damn good consolation for me to be able to go home if that's, if that's my penalty. But I'm going to do the wrong. I'm not going to. I'm, I'm just, it is what it is. And I understand that people are upset and this, they can be whatever they want. But I'm there to help them put myself in a position to work with a person, which I think Hillary Clinton will not leave anybody behind. She'll work with us. Manchin's Senate colleague, Republican Shelley Moore Capito, has not officially endorsed her party's presidential nominee in the race, but she did speak at the Republican National Convention earlier this summer in support of some of Trump's policies, including his stances on coal. It's those differing stances, however, that are having an impact not just on the voters in West Virginia, but across Appalachia. Donald Trump has, of course, promised to bring the coal industry back, but has given few details about how he'll accomplish that feat. Hillary Clinton has said she'll put miners out of work, but is pushing a big plan to reinvest in coal communities. State Impact Pennsylvania's Marie Cusick visited one of those communities just across the border from West Virginia in Greene County, Pennsylvania to get the local take on the race. Every year, the King Coal Parade winds through the center of Carmichael's, a small town about an hour south of Pittsburgh. People line up to see the fire engines, classic cars, floats, and marching bands. 
This year, at least, some are arguing about the election. Oh, the coal industry. Guess who ain't for coal? I think, you know what? You want the who coal, coal industry was been around here for a long time. And you know who ain't for it? It's fair to say the presidential race has people pretty fired up and worried. That's because times are changing. Just ask 17-year-old Morgan Voidhofer, who was crowned coal queen in the annual pageant. She says she's thinking about moving away to pursue a career in acting. People have been losing their jobs and many of the mines have been shutting down. Over the past four years, Pennsylvania's lost about 3,000 jobs in the coal industry as it faces tougher environmental regulations and competition from cheaper natural gas and renewable energy. The downturn has hurt people like Raymond Beckett, a mine electrician who lost his job in March. It's been a tough year, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm 52 years old, and where am I going to find a job? Nobody wants to look at me. His unemployment is running out soon, and he doesn't know what's next. This is all this area is known. It's coal and steel. A lifelong Democrat, Beckett says he switched his registration to Republican before the primary to vote for Donald Trump, who he calls the lesser of two evils. I don't think he'll be worse than anybody else that's been in there. Green County has been shifting from blue to red. In 2000, Al Gore beat George W. Bush by 10 points here. But the county has gone for Republican presidential candidates since then. There are a lot of Trump yard signs around now, which isn't surprising because he's been courting votes from coal communities across the country. Here he is at a rally in Kentucky. We're going to bring the coal industry back, folks. We're going to bring it back. Trump doubts the mainstream science about man-made climate change. He wants to roll back environmental regulations and lift a moratorium on new coal leases for federal land. When asked in Greene County if they really believe he can bring back coal, people often react with anger toward Clinton. Trump supporter Angela Smith is the daughter of a retired miner. I mean, I think that if he can't, he can't, if he, but he's willing to try. Hillary's like, let's just, coal, let's just close down the coal mines. Another guy leaned into the microphone but didn't want to give his name. If Donald Duck was running for president against Hillary, I would vote for Donald Duck. I don't have any use for her, period. A lot of people are mad about a comment Clinton made earlier this year. We're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business, right, Tim? And we're going to make it clear that we don't want to forget those people. She later apologized, saying that's not what she meant. But Clinton does think climate change is a real threat, and she's put together a $30 billion plan to reinvest in coal communities, which includes expanding clean energy projects and retraining workers. Her message has resonated with Don Fike, who lives in Carmichael's but skips the King Coal Parade. He's an ex-Marine and former coal miner going back to school under the GI Bill. He wishes others could use it, too. Coal miners are some of the most innovative people you ever meet. So I think that they do need a retraining program to help them out. But perhaps not surprisingly, there is a fair amount of skepticism about presidential candidates promising to help. They're talking about it now, but it should have been talked about 5, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. That's Greene County Commissioner Blair Zimmerman, a former miner himself. He's a Democrat supporting Clinton, but says both parties have let down coal country over the years. Coal is hanging on, but by a a thin thread. 
Zimmerman thinks coal is still king for now, just barely, and hopes the region can develop a more diverse economy in the future. Marie Cusick, State Impact, Pennsylvania. This is Viewpoint from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Hey, this is Scott Finn, Executive Director at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. You're listening to the special podcast of Viewpoint because 10,000 plus members, you and people like you, have contributed to West Virginia Public Broadcasting. We're asking you to contribute right now during our No Rant, No Slant campaign. Ashton's salary, these microphones, the ability to put it on iTunes, this all takes support. Support from members just like you. So call right now, 800-RADIO-87. That's 800-RADIO-87. Or go online to wvpublic.org. Click that donate button. You'll see all sorts of great opportunities for WV Public mugs and t-shirts and how you can support programs just like Viewpoint. That's wvpublic.org. And thanks. David Moran is not a new name for some West Virginia voters. The Libertarian is running for governor for a second time after finishing fourth in the polls in 2012. Moran is running on platforms that include abolishing the state's personal income tax, cutting state boards and programs that he sees as a waste of taxpayer dollars, decriminalizing marijuana, and increasing access to substance abuse treatment programs. He sat down with me last week to discuss his platforms, his politics, and the importance of having an alternative voice in the gubernatorial race. We began with an explanation of the Libertarian Party's stances. The main thing that Libertarians are looking for is for a re-energizing of personal commitment and personal responsibility, and doing that in a way that does not have any ill effect upon anyone else around you or upon the environment. Now, you can get very specific about those sorts of things. We're responsible for our families, for our parents, for our children, that sort of thing. But we're also responsibility for the society in which we live. And that's an important attribute of that. We have to look at the entire society as an arena where we live because we are here and everybody else has the same rights as we do. Why did you choose to run for governor? Uh, in 2012, I was asked if I would run for governor. Our law here in West Virginia requires that a gubernatorial candidate receive at least 1% of the vote for the party to be an officially recognized party and to be on the ballot. So we did that in 2012. Very, very difficult process. We had to petition and, and have people sign petitions that they believe that we should be on the ballot. And we worked uh, for, um, well, at least nine months in 2012. Uh, the campaign itself was interesting, very interesting, exciting. Um, across the state, I got better than the 1% that was necessary. And in my best counties, I was up in the 6 or 7% range. What do you see as the top two or three issues that West Virginians are facing this election cycle? Can you just list them for me? I certainly could. And of course, right at the top is going to be employment and the drug problem that we have. And they are coupled together. 
if you look down in McDowell County, where our unemployment is the highest, we also have the, the greatest problems with uh, drug addiction. So that's number one. The second is really our educational systems. Education doesn't stop at a certain grade, and it doesn't stop when you get a degree or a diploma. Education is something that we all have to pursue our entire lives. So those are two. Uh, the third I would probably put is the, is the nature of the characteristic economic situation and the legal system in this state. We, in, in addition to being one of the poorest states, we have one of the highest per capita income tax rates in the United States. And there are, there are states that don't have any income tax at all, like Delaware or Florida. We need to get control over our taxation in order to be able to proceed effectively and in order to improve. That has to happen, and that's a legal process. As governor of this state, the first thing that I'm going to do is to start cutting into all of those costs that we have that are our, our tax-borne costs, commissions that don't do anything, organizations that just are not effective, parts of our government that are just there because they've always been there. Can you? I mean, that's not a new idea. That's something that the Republican leadership has been talking about a lot. So could you give me an example of something, a, a part of the government you say that's just there and maybe not working? Well, the, the first thing, I mentioned commissions, and I think that's very important. They arise because of political incentive. Uh, people are being rewarded for support in the political arena, and those things become um, effectively jobs where nobody does anything. So that's, that's one example. Uh, another example that I would get into would be in our university public education system. We have burdened ourselves with so many regulations at the university level that the number of people that are administrators at the university has now risen to be greater than the number of faculty. These organizations are no longer, our universities, no longer just teaching. They are basically having to maintain themselves, and there's no reason for that. We don't need that much administration. If you look around you, one of the things the, the governor should do is constantly be on the move in this state, looking for things that are not economically useful. And I would intend to do that. Anything that, that is not being productive, an area where somebody is, is sitting around and doing nothing because either they don't know what to do or the job has expired or it's no longer important. Those are the things that I would spend my time on. Well, let's work our way back through these three issues. Um, we, we touched on changes to the tax system, to the tax code. Let's go back to education. What could you as governor do to improve student achievement in the K-12 through system in the state of West Virginia? The first thing uh, with regard to, to elementary school education is that we have come to some sort of a conclusion that we have to treat all kids exactly the same way educationally. Now certainly we have to treat them the same in terms of their rights and, and access to education and all of those sorts of things. But it is, it is really detrimental to, to children to assume that they all have to be 
educated exactly the same way and that they have to learn according to some root program or, or some schedule. And that is one of the problems that we've faced with Common Core. Just the words Common Core are telling us that we think that there is a commonality here. If you go to any school, you're going to find kids that are going to be excited about different things. And what they are excited about forms the core of what their education will be. This is where they progress. If they're excited about automobiles, then the education should refer to that. If they're excited about astronomy, the education should refer to that. It should heighten and accent the things that really are intrinsically important and of interest to the children. The Democrat and the Republican in this race have set out these seven or ten point plans about how they're going to deal with substance abuse if they should become the next governor of West Virginia. I'm not asking you for seven to ten talking points, but as the governor of this state, how can you make a change in the substance abuse epidemic that we're facing? What I would do is divide this whole issue of drug abuse into the spectrum from the the drugs that are not that critical to the ones that are very, very critical. At the very easy end are those things that are just simply recreational or they are self-abusive. In that particular case, we certainly have to decriminalize this process immediately. If you send somebody to prison for marijuana use, it is not going to cure them. If anything, it's just going to make the, the problem worse. Then as you go down through the, the spectrum of drugs, you will finally get to the ones that are the, the, really the most tragic, the opioids and the heroin abuse, the ones that we do have to step in. We have to take care of these people because they are no longer capable of taking care of themselves. They've destroyed their own ability to be productive citizens. And so we have to step in. What do we do with them? Not throw them in prison either, but find ways that we can medically treat them and bring them back. Now, in the middle are the, are the cases where we have people that are making up their minds about whether or not they want to be productive citizens or not. This goes directly into education, and this is where the educational promotion in our state really will count. Now, I don't have seven points here. And I don't want this to sound like pablum because it's not. We have to take care of ourselves. That is vital. And if we don't do it, nobody else is going to be able to do it for us except by some sort of regulation or legislation, which we already know is totally ineffective. We can't wage war on drugs. That doesn't work. We can't just say, don't do it. We have to tell people why. So you're talking about the rehabilitation of addicts through this process. But I can't help but notice that you don't mention anything about dealing with the people who are supplying the drugs. We've got one opponent who is calling for increases to mandatory minimums for drug dealers, who feels like that is part of the answer. Is that part of the answer? Yes, it is. Okay, we've been talking about people that are addicts. Now, why are they addicts? Because somebody is making some economic benefit. I assume it's economic. Uh, people probably do this for a living, pushing drugs or selling drugs. 
There is no place in society for people that are doing that. We all recognize now the danger and the, and the terrible characteristics of addiction. There's no room in society for people that are doing that. And so they do have to be incarcerated, not the addicts themselves, all right, but those that are actually selling. Let's move a little bit more into the politics. A poll came out in early September that showed at that point you had 5% of the vote. And that 5% threshold is a pretty big deal for third parties in West Virginia, um, namely because winning 5% on Election Day gives your party access to many of the statewide debates in the next gubernatorial election cycle. I don't mean any disrespect by this, but the prospects of a third-party candidate winning this race when the two mainstream candidates are polling at 30 and 40 percent two months out, they're a little slim. Would simply meeting that threshold, that 5 percent on Election Day, would that be a win for you? Uh, let's look at it in a different light. 5 percent across the state means probably uh, 1 or 2 percent in some of our counties and 10 to 15 percent in others. And so I like people to look at it from that perspective. Uh, depending upon how much campaigning one does in a county will increase this. And I found that in 2012, that the harder I worked and the more people I talked to and the more shopping centers I walked around and that sort of thing, the higher the percentage went until we were, you know, well into the, the 6 7% level. So uh, I look at that 5% uh, in that light. If you look at that, you'll see that uh, Jim Justice is polling about 45%, and Bill Cole is polling about 35%, something like that. So there's 80%, right? So that leaves 20% either uncommitted or it, statewide again, uncommitted or, or uh, willing to consider. Uh, and so I look at that as a great success. Yes. Now, there's another success that we should look at, and this, of course, uh, is where the Libertarian Party per se steps in, and that is the recognition of Libertarian candidates for other offices other than the gubernatorial one. I have to keep my focus on firmly on 1%, all right? That's, that is make or break as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and I think that we will easily do that. And I'm not, that's not bravado on my part. It's just based upon experience and what I hear coming back from the people. I'd like to say a little bit about that because when I talk to the rank and file as I'm walking around this state, they are saying to me things like, oh, thank goodness you're running because I'm not really happy with the current situation. And that's not a slam at either or any of the other four candidates, uh, but rather they're not happy. This is not a good situation when the voter's not happy. The voters should be looking for things that they want to vote for, not things they want to vote against. And we see this at the national level, too. I mean, I just heard uh, coming down here to talk to you today a poll that was saying that the majority of voters are voting against one candidate or another rather than for one or another. This is not the proper way to run a representative democracy. How do we change that? I... Education, education, education. This <laughs> sort of like the real estate business, right? With location. Uh, the debates that are coming up are a good example. Uh, the 
Broadcasters Association and the Press Association have both decided with the concurrence of the two leading candidates from the Democratic and Republican Party that the debates would be limited to just the Democratic and Republican Party candidates. Well, this is unacceptable for two reasons. Number one, I am a candidate. No matter what anybody thinks, I'm on the ballot. And I worked for four years to get on the ballot, all right? Whether you agree or disagree with any of my philosophy, not you, Ashton, personally, but anybody, agree or disagree with my philosophy is not the point. There are people out there who do agree with me, and the ones who don't largely don't because they don't know. They haven't been given the opportunity to find out yet. We live in a slogan-driven world and a world in which appearance on television and in the newspapers and on radio, those are the things that people look for because they become credentials. They don't necessarily convince you the right or wrong of any candidate, but they are credentialing. And so it is absolutely essential that the Press Association and the Broadcasters Association agree immediately to allowing all five candidates into the debates. And then ask, who would, who would be hurt by this? Would the leading candidate be hurt by it? I don't think so. Not unless the leading candidate does something that is unacceptable. No, it would open up the possibility for everybody to be more aware, to be more learned and more educated on what different possibilities were. I'm here because I want to provide an opportunity for people to have better choices, increased opportunities to learn and to find out, and to make better decisions. If we don't make better decisions, then the entire form of our government is subject to criticism. Again, that was David Moran, the West Virginia Libertarian Party candidate for governor. This has been Viewpoint from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Special thanks this week to Marie Cusick and State Impact Pennsylvania. We'll be back next week with a conversation about the impact political union and even celebrity endorsements can have on a campaign. I think part of what made Oprah Winfrey's endorsement of Obama so successful was the fact that she hadn't really been much engaged in partisan politics before that. But once you do, you've done it. Viewpoint is available at wvpublic.org or subscribe on iTunes. Follow the show at ViewpointWV on Twitter. I'm Ashton Mara. Thanks for joining us.